big news, because we had so much fun at our last live show, we're doing it again. That's right. We're going live again, but this time we're going to the Ripped Bodice in Brooklyn, which is an absolute dream come true of a location. This show is going to be part of a larger romance festival being put on by Fish Market Theater Company. And I'll give you details about all of the awesome events that they'll have going on that weekend soon. But for now, head on over to the ticket link in the show notes and get your tickets for our performance, which will be on March 9th at 7.15 p.m. Eastern Time. We don't have streaming set up quite yet, but we're working on it because we know a lot of you aren't in New York. But if you are or if you can get here, we hope that you'll get your tickets and come join us because it's going to be a blast. Hey, everyone. We don't have any new patrons to thank this week, so we just want to take a moment to thank everyone who's already bought merch from our store on TeePublic. The link for our store is in the episode description, so check it out. We have t-shirts, hoodies, baseball shirts, mugs, notebooks, magnets, and more. So come grab some merch by going to the link in the episode description and send us a pic on Instagram. We really want to see what you get. And now enjoy this week's episode covering Why She Wrote by Hannah Chapman and Lauren Burke, the hosts of Bonnets at Dawn, with our guests, Hannah Chapman and Lauren Burke. This is Becca. This is Molly. We're here to talk about Jane Austen and others. And others. Today we're talking about a really great new book called Why She Wrote by Lauren Burke and Hannah Chapman. And we actually have been blessed to actually have Hannah and Lauren on the show with us. So Hannah and Lauren, how are you doing? Good, thank you. (laughs) You're doing well. I'm here in body. Here is still like an adjective to describe, (laughs) you know, your present state. The vaccine has, you know, taken me to a new level. I feel good on one hand, but also exhausted. So Hannah... Hannah, take the wheel. <laughs> That's why I already told them that I've got like considered like long COVID. They're trying to work out why I've been ill since December. So I oh, think God. you've got both of us really just on the verge of not dying. Very Victorian. You do have <laughs> us in our full like behind the scenes of Bonnets at Dawn. It's very Victorian. Yeah. <laughs> Lady illness. You know what? I feel like you guys are like pre being sent to bath right now. Mm-hmm. So it's still a vibe that goes with the book. Absolutely. We really need to take the waters. We've been talking about it. We just did a Jasna presentation about going to bath and we ended with a whole like segment about the like spa trip that we were going to do once it was safe to do. Oh my gosh. Like this is not really related to Jane Austen, but these are our travel plans post COVID if anyone's interested. That. That's a modern day equivalent of uh, going to the sea to uh, reinvigorate your health. Oh yeah, yeah exactly. Mm-hmm. These days you just sweat it out and we need it. Hot tub. Right. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but thank you so much for joining us. Uh, why don't you let our listeners know a little bit about you, the the book you wrote, and a little bit about your podcast, Bonnets at Dawn. Sure. So Bonnets at Dawn is a podcast that focuses on the lives and works of women writers from the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. We started it in 2017. And is that right? 2017? Yeah. Yeah. The year that Jane Austen note came out. That's how you can remember that little factoid. <laughs> um, <laughs> The show started off as Bonnets at Dawn, Austin versus Bronte. It was very much like I was team Austin, having read all of the Austin books. Uh, and Lauren was team Bronte because she had read both, but I'd never read the Brontes <laughs> and like had this whole bit about how I didn't care to. And then, you know, the, the show slowly evolved to the Bonnets at Dawn we have now where we look at all sorts of writers 
Um, it's given us the opportunity to talk about some more underrepresented authors, people that maybe aren't talked about or critiqued as much, letter writers, diarists, uh, travel writers. And then uh, Why She Wrote, our book, which we did with illustrator Kaylee Bales, that has just come out this year. And that's really uh, an opportunity for us to like dig more into those stories that are hard to capture in like 45 minutes of audio. But Lauren, you can say more about the book. What do you think? (laughs) (laughs) So the book is a mix of comics and essays. And um, it's funny, both Hannah and I have been comic editors and writers in the past. And we pitched a book of essays, essentially, with some illustrations. And our editors were like, well, hey, hang on a minute. You guys do comics. Why don't you do comics for the book? And we were like, "Okay." (laughs) Um, And I'm really glad that we did, actually, because Kaylee did such a beautiful job with them. And we were actually able to just really capture, just like Hannah said, more elements to these ladies like lives via the visuals. So, yeah, we've got um, some essays. We also sort of group every author together in a chapter. So we'll get into that a little bit later. And then we also have like some fun facts and their bibliographies. It sounds like a lot, but I think that we pulled the formatting off in the book, which I love. Yeah. That's like one of my favorite things about the book. So yeah, it's 18 authors. It's out now and it's beautifully illustrated by Kaylee. And um, yeah, we're really excited about it. It's really fun and would recommend, listeners would recommend. I loved that there were comics in it. Um, that just made the stories like more digestible to me and more relatable uh, because first of all, like it's obviously easier to read comics than essays because they're faster and illustrated and that's why picture books are a thing. Mm-hmm. But like, I don't know, it's just, I feel like it captured them as like more human than an essay. Oh, I'm glad. Yeah. Yeah. It helps to put a face to a name. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And I also, um, funnily enough, when I was reading it, I blew through this because it reads really quickly because I, I kind of was looking at it as a collection of graphic novel short stories. Mm-hmm. And it what was so great about it is that the the comics imbued a little humor into it and a little uh whimsy into it, but I also felt like it gave it a a little bit of a superhero vibe Mm -hmm. like (laughs) we were reading about like the different Avengers but instead of Avengers it was influential female authors so I I very much enjoyed the the format you guys landed on for this um so before we get into talking about the actual book itself we're going to ask you a few questions which we ask every guest that comes on this show Mm -hmm. starting with what is your relationship to Jane Austen Ooh, Hannah you have a more interesting relationship to Jane Austen I feel like it's kind of bog standard but it goes on for a really long time right mm-hmm. <laughs> one of like one of my earliest memories is watching the 95 BBC adaptation with my mum but she would videotape it while we were awake and then she would watch it back at night on and it was like really low quality and so I was five at the time and I I do remember sitting on the sofa bed and like watching this video with my mum so that was the first time I watched it and then when I was 12, I went on a holiday with my dad and I was like, oh, mom, I want to take a book with me. And she gave me her copy of Pride and Prejudice to read. And she's like, I think you're old enough to give this a go now. And I did. And I loved it. And then it was like a really nice bonding thing to do with my dad because he then started taking me to all of like the stately homes that they filmed the adaptations in. So I'd watch the adaptations with my mom and then I'd go and visit the homes with my dad. And then 
yeah, just bit by bit, my both of my parents really encouraged it. And then by chance, when I was at university at Bath Spa, I worked at the Jane Austen Centre for a short time for the summer. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I like got to wear a costume and stuff, which I was really into. Oh, my God. I love that. <laughs> they asked in the interview, they were like, how would you feel about costume? And I was like, oh, sign me up, like 100%. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I really liked that job and I was really lucky because Lauren and her husband once came and I got to do them like the introductory talk and take them through the exhibit and this was like years before Bonnets at Dawn was a thing and yeah so it's it's never been like I didn't study her at uni or anything but she's kind of been like this repeat figure and influence in my life like just all all through growing up so yeah. I don't think my story is as interesting as Hannah's. I think that she was on summer reading, but I can't remember what year. So I think it was Pride and Prejudice, which was the first book that I read by Austin, which I loved. Uh, Pride and Prejudice is still maybe my favorite. And I get called basic all the time for this, but I don't really care. This is a no judgment podcast for whatever Austin (laughs) takes you have. So um, yeah, I think that was like my favorite book. And then obviously after that, checked out the adaptations. I think in my earlier years, I probably would have called myself an Anglophile. We've had a lot of talk <laughs> on the show about ang- like what being an Anglophile is, if I still am, unclear. But um, I started going to England like a lot. So my mother-in-law, I'm very lucky, she worked for United. And so I could fly all the time. So I spent most of my 20s just taking trips. And I would just go to England like all the time and go to a bunch of stately homes. And then, of course, when Hannah and I became friends, I would go and visit Hannah all the time. So, yeah, I think that trip to Bath that you were talking about, that was my honeymoon. Oh, my God. Yeah. And I gate crashed it. Yeah. (laughs) And on my way there, I read Persuasion for the first time all the way through. So that was really great. It was a really great experience. And then after that trip, Hannah and I were working in comics, but we were like, man, we should do a Jane Austen project someday. But we just couldn't figure out what exactly to do because there are one million books on Jane Austen right so we were always sort of like looking for an angle and it was always something that was sort of in the background so I think for most of that time we were just sort of digesting material and just like thinking about it like hmm would we do this would we do this would we do this so yeah that's sort of my relationship with Austen it's not as intense as Hannah's but um I do love her (laughs) I think those are both lovely stories Speaking of stately homes, I want to give a shout out to our listener, Sarah, who this morning went for a walk by the 1995 Pemberley, which I forget the name of the actual house. And she took a picture of our podcast in front of the house and it made my whole day. That's really cute. It was very sweet. Yeah. All right. Question number two. What is your favorite work of Jane Austen's? Oh, I'm basic. I think it's still it's still Pride and Prejudice, but um. I really it changes, though, because we do read alongs on the show and we get experts on and then we have our listeners sort of weigh in with their comments and we read alongside other texts. And so it does change. Like, I feel very, very passionate about Northanger Abbey since our Northanger Abbey read along. So um, it changes all of the time. But I think Pride and Prejudice is my constant or maybe that's just because we just wrote about it and I've been thinking about it a lot. It's okay if Pride and Prejudice is your favorite. It's a great book. It's very funny. (laughs) I really, Persuasion is my favorite. I've had like an up and down relationship with it. I remember reading it the first time and not like giving it much thought. And then I read it in my mid to late 20s and I was like, 
yeah, I had like, like unrequited love situation going on. So I really related a lot to it. And then I read it again more recently. And I was like, oh man, I had like the wrong take on it. Like I had a really different take when I read it after that whole situation that I was in. So it remains my favorite. The book that I probably had more of a reaction to is I read Mansfield Park and really didn't like it the first time I read it and just had no interest in rereading it and then we reread it for the show and now I still don't like Fanny Price sorry but I really like the book and I really like everything that Austin is like doing with it and I think it's a really interesting book so Mansfield Park is probably my second favorite just in that sense but Persuasion's number one I like all of them She has a very uh, consistently good canon. Mm -hmm. I don't think. Yeah. uh, Some people think there's a weak link. I don't think so. As far as I've read. No, I don't think there's a weak link. I don't know if I'm going to be able to read Mansfield Park with a straight face because do do we think that the people who wrote Funny Girl based Fanny Bryce on Fanny Price? No. Or is that just a coincidence? coincidence i'm pretty sure i'm 90 (laughs) percent sure that uh fanny price is based on a real person oh she is she is she is okay barbara stands don't come for me i love my girl babs i just forgot and then also yeah i'm just gonna be thinking about her the whole time so headcanon right now barbara streisand is starring in mansfield yes barbara streisand starring in mansfield park that's going to be on the record for five years down the line when we get to that book. Hannah, Lauren, <laughs> you guys you guys could laugh at that with me. <laughs> I was just trying to imagine Fanny Price. Like, I don't know anything about Funny Girl. I haven't seen it. But I just know that one song, right? And Fanny Price ain't singing that. <laughs> She's not. Can you? She doesn't have the stones to do it. You can... No, she doesn't. <laughs> no, she does not. Um, Maybe Mary Crawford is singing that to her. I yeah. Know. <laughs> you know what? I could see that. But... <laughs> All right. Uh, so number three, question number three, uh, which character in Austin do you relate to the most? Mm, we just we just did that Jasna talk the other day. And I said that my aspirational character is Eleanor Dashwood, which is true. But I think I might be like a Mary Musgrove sometimes. Very fair. <laughs> or just once a month. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but like maybe I do also love the book Emma as well like sometimes I read Emma and I'm like ooh I understand her Emma's fantastic I I have a lot of feelings on her 100% Mary Musgrove I like (laughs) I mean if we're being honest if we're being realistic my aspirational character would be Anne probably um yeah I don't know who am I most like I always think of this is it awful that whenever people ask that I'm always like um Amy March I always just immediately think of little women because everyone's like, oh, I'm such a Joe. And I'm like, I'm such an Amy. And even when people ask about Austin, I'm like, I mean, Amy March is probably <laughs> the literary heroine I identify most as. That's amazing. <laughs> I don't know what that says about me. And then I'm definitely Joe. <laughs> I think I'm probably Amy too. Mm. With a hint of Joe, like a like an Amy Sun Joe Moon with a Beth Rising. <laughs> I've never read Little Women. I'm basing this solely on the ni- 2019. I was gonna say, yeah, is is this literary Amy Mar- March or Florence Pugh Amy uh, March? I'm not Florence Pugh's Amy March. I really liked her performance, but she was the least believable child I have ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, in those like early scenes, I was like, I'm not buying it, and. Like uh, Timothy Chalamet is the least believable adult, so yeah. that whole relationship was really. That's interesting. true. That's absolutely <laughs> yeah. true. He's 
such a baby. <laughs> there was a rumor going around that Timothy Chalamet was going to be playing Mr. Darcy in something recently, and I am very glad whatever that was did not pan out. Because I think it was just a fan casting. I, no, there were like articles on it. I heard about it, and I was like, I, I can't be in a world where he's playing Mr. Darcy because he's a he's a child. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I could see him in different different roles, but uh definitely not Mr. Darcy. Ooh, I know who I want him to play in Sense and Sensibility, but I'm not going to say it. I think I might have already said it. Say it. I want to know. Before we before we continue just so you guys know where Molly is in Sense and Sensibility mm, for spoilers mm. uh, sake, she has just read the chapter where Willoughby leaves Marianne under mysterious circumstances. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, I would put Tim- Timothy Chalamet as Willoughby at this point. Yeah, I've thought yeah. that's a, I yeah, think that's, that's a fair casting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, thank yeah. you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. The issue with him playing Mr. Darcy is that and this is again going back to little women, right? His suit when he's an adult does not fit him. He looks like he's borrowing the suit of an older man and I can just see him in Mr. Darcy's outfit, but it's like five times too big. And like the sleeves are hanging down to his knees and like the boots are really high, like a Muppet wearing human clothing, <laughs> really, is what I'm yes. picturing. Yes, particularly yeah. the green jacket that Colin first rocked so well, but it's just coming yeah. down to his feet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, if you're thirsty for Timothy Chalamet, that's fine. You're allowed to but be. But you should Maybe. be thirsting for Colin first. Like, let's be real. <laughs> If you thirst for either one or both, that's fine. But maybe just also you'd have to explain why you would think he would be a decent Mr. Darcy if that is your take. Speaking of hot takes, number four, uh, what's your hottest Austin take? What's your controversial opinion without spoilers to Molly? Do we have controversial opinions? I mean, we do have an essay coming out about Mr. Collins that I think. Ooh. I don't think it'll be controversial, but I don't. Ooh, wait, I want to hear. I want to hear your controversial take on Mr. Collins. Well, we weirdly, strangely, uh, we were asked to to write an essay for a book of essays on Austin and like fandom. And we chose to talk about uh, adaptations and um we did a screening of Pride and Prejudice and Zombies many years ago now. And it really like changed our outlook on Collins. And so then we went back and revisited just basically every film we could get our hands on that had a Collins in it, including like some 1960s versions of Pride and Prejudice where you just have like maybe one episode here and there. And um, just talked about how Collins is portrayed on screen and how he's portrayed in the book and how we don't usually have enough time on screen to really like capture the full like sort of spectrum of Collins because he's a very interesting character. I don't think he's like exactly the creepy cousin that we portray him as on screen 100%. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, also via Collins, you really start to understand the economics of the world of Pride and Prejudice. Mm-hmm. And that's something that's not portrayed on screen enough. Right. Again, it's just sort of like you, you kind of have like a predator vibe around him. Like, you know, like he's this creepy cousin that's coming to prey on, you know, his little cousins. But Honestly, he's he's like actually a really eligible bachelor and like everything's coming up Collins if you really think about it. Like, I mean, he's got this great job out of nowhere, right? Yeah. <laughs> he's an eligible bachelor. These gals are not like they're pretty isolated. They're not actually likely to meet someone that is like this financially secure. And um, yeah, so 
Anyway, it's a long paper. I'm like, there's a lot of elements to it. I'm like, God, 6,000 words on it. We wrote a lot of words on Collins and we could actually write more. But essentially, um, it's just encouraging people to take another look at him because uh, because of the economics of the story, actually. And when you reduce it down to sort of like him as a predator, then you sort of miss out on certain elements of the world that are actually really important. Right. Graham, if you could throw in an economics of dating and Jane Austen's sting right here, that came up very organically. Yeah, we have a little sound effect that goes with the economics of dating. Now, though, I cannot get out of my head. I'm going to be singing everything's coming up Colin. <laughs> I believe that is in the essay. I mean, also, if you think about him marrying Charlotte, too, I mean, he's got a good deal at the end of that book, right? Oh, he's yeah. Great happily ever after. He has an amazing deal. Yeah. That's a good hot take. I feel like that's a that's a very fair hot take to mm-hmm. take. Mm-hmm. I think our listeners will agree. Yeah, I guess my hot take is that I think that uh, Jane Austen wrote Northanger Abbey when she was a young woman, and then it was abandoned for a really long time. And I actually think that she revisits a lot of the ideas that she begins thinking about in Northanger Abbey in Mansfield Park and there's a lot of parallels between the two books that aren't necessarily talked about and in my opinion I do think she's drawing a lot on the fact that her older brother was adopted by a wealthy family and what impact taking children from their sphere and then them like returning can do to a family and like the different and I think she touches on it really briefly at the end of Northanger Abbey and then in Mansfield Park really goes into it um, a lot deeper. And that's my hot take. Without even uh, giving too much of a spoiler, that's briefly touched upon in Emma a little bit as well. Mm-hmm. through certain characters. Yeah, it's something that she thinks about a lot, definitely in her works. I was actually going to ask, well, I guess I can ask this when we get a little bit more into the chapters. But I did notice that the first book that it seemed like she sold in the comic was Northanger Abbey. But then... After that, she was like working out other stuff and got abandoned. So, yeah, I'm interested in that story Mm. for sure. Speaking of, I think it's time to talk about your wonderful book, Why She Wrote. Yeah. So we have a few questions um, related to the book in particular. Um, So in the intro of the book, you say you started the podcast initially because you wanted to talk about classic lit together and you were like hanging out debating and and you talked about this a little bit at the beginning of the podcast but what got you both into like classic literature in general as a whole like what what drove you to this path i think for me this it's pretty easy i i love history and i love reading so i think the two just go together and i love reading like a classic text and just sort of imagining this other world and then just what it tells me about you know, about history, about the world that I live in and whatnot. So that's it, honestly, for me. I was always a history geek. I thought I would be maybe a history teacher at some point in my life. So I think that's it. And really, I'm like the only one in my friend group who reads classic lit, except for Hannah. I think that's kind of one of the things that we actually bonded over. It's like we're the only ones that were interested. And that's kind of one of the reasons why the podcast started. I have found since the podcast started that actually a lot of people I know read classic lit. They just don't talk to people about it. It's just like a thing that you do on your own. Mm -hmm. And people have really strong opinions about these books that they don't really like discuss because I don't want to say unless it's your personality, but unless it's like your thing and your vibe and that's what you do. It's just like a book that you've read, right? I am probably the least well-read host of On It's at Dawn. Like I have not read as much classically as Lauren. I read a lot of Austin. I read Austin a lot of times. I never read the Bronze Days before we started the show. I had read like 
I read Middlemarch for uni. I really am not like a big classic lit person. I'm reading a lot more of it now because of the nature of Bonnets at Dawn. And that is a nice thing about the show is that it has introduced me to a lot of people. But I can find it quite overwhelming because we'll talk to people and I think they think I've read a lot of classic lit and I just haven't. <laughs> like, I really love fantasy and I really love sci-fi. <laughs> and that's what I read a lot of like as a child and as a woman in my early 20s. And so I'm shifting more towards classic lit now as an adult, definitely. But I've also stopped reading books by men. So I'm really just shifting towards classics written by women. Uh, I haven't really read a book by a man for about three years now. And I don't regret the choice. I read one Ian McEwan and it was awful. And just it really vindicated my decision. (laughs) I love that. I feel like we have a similar (laughs) dynamic going on because I also have read next to no classic lit um aside from now pride and prejudice and half of (laughs) (laughs) sense and sensibility Mm -hmm. and I'm totally like sci-fi fantasy like all the other books that I have going on are fantasy novels and Mm -hmm. so can relate and then Becca is like yeah my favorite book is Wuthering Heights and I'm like right over my head Wuthering Heights is my favorite book of all time it's fine oh we should talk about that it's oh I uh not to go too into the weeds here, because I obviously I don't want to be giving away things to Molly. But um, in preparation for this, I actually went ahead and listened to your guys's Heathcliff versus Darcy debate. And it got me so hyped to reread Wuthering Heights because I was talking about this a bit with Molly before we got on and she did not totally understand this reference. Hear me out. Wuthering Heights. This is a tangent, but Wuthering Heights is kind of like like an old timey Breaking Bad in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Because if you've watched Breaking Bad, I don't know if anybody else here has watched Breaking yeah, Bad. Yeah. My boyfriend just made me watch the whole thing. Um, the whole, the show is sort of this interesting look at how somebody becomes evil and this really interesting meld between systemic problems, mm-hmm. failures of society towards a person versus the fact that this person inherently has some deep flaws Mm -hmm. and has some personal accountability for the person they ended up becoming. Mm -hmm. So I think that there is a more interesting look at what bad people look like in Wuthering Heights than has been explored in most literature. So I think it's a very interesting book. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. I think that the fact that we usually only talk about the first half of the book and that it's portrayed as a romance mm-hmm. has people coming into something that they don't really understand. Like if you were going into Breaking Bad thinking this is a romantic tale, you'd be like, what is going on? <laughs> That's not what it is. Oh, yeah. No, no one. No one walks into Breaking Bad and is like, this is about the marriage between Skylar and Walter. And right. Right. What I loved what you said um, this this actually kind of ties back into the book a little bit. You said something in the podcast about how it would not be considered a romance at all if it were written by a man. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so insightful. And it actually reminded me of a line from the introduction of your book. Historically speaking, women's art has rarely been seen as deliberate. Women writers are presented as hobbyists, anomalies, or accidental geniuses. Their authorship is challenged and their content dismissed. To combat these stereotypes head on, we wanted to show these women at work. I loved that because I think that there is this conception that it's like chiclet to read Mm -hmm. Austin or Bronte. But in reality, these are some of the most important writers that ever lived. And we got to give them their their due. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I find it insanely offensive that like chiclet is even still taught as a as a class. I love chiclet. I like love modern chiclet. And I grew up reading 
my mum's I don't know like Sophie Kinsella and like Katie Ford and stuff and I love it but then to lump Jane Austen or to lump the Brontes in with that they're not doing the same thing they just happen to be written by women and then that class you're selling that class to women and you're like putting it in this box and saying like this is a class for women about books written by women regardless of their genre or content right it's you wouldn't do that with male writers right it's endlessly frustrating yeah I totally agree one of my favorite um stories that's come out of our podcast was when we had Mike Schubert on he he went to an all boys school and they read Pride and Prejudice and he was like they were they were all going into it thinking this was going to be a girly book and none of them wanted to read it and then they were all enraptured and they were like shipping they were all like <laughs> super into it and they yeah. were like what is Mr. Darcy doing that's not like he completely <laughs> lost his cool proposing to Elizabeth <laughs> uh, I would love to be a fly on the wall with those boys having <laughs> yeah, like their discussions yeah uh, this is actually a good place so this is a book that groups together a bunch of very different uh, female authors. And one of the questions we have for you is, how did you pick which authors to feature in this book? This was really difficult. Um, there's a lot of authors that are left out of the book that hopefully we will get to talk about in the future. Um, we've got different plans for them. I think part of it was who we could talk to expert-wise, right? We wanted to get very different like sides of these women as well kind of something that you said at the top of the show is like we didn't want everyone to seem like these like lofty historical figures right we wanted them to be very human um so we really wanted to make sure that we we felt like we knew them but then also because they're kind of grouped together in these sections we wanted people that had like literary ties so a lot of them are related or they're reading each other or they're responding to each other or they're doing the same thing in the same genre essentially, or they're having the same sort of publishing issues and problems with copyright and all of that good stuff. But yeah, it was, I mean, it was really difficult. It was really, really hard. <laughs> I always think it's interesting, like the authors that didn't make it in, there were one or two that we had even like started work on that essentially got cut. Um, I originally was writing about Edith Eaton's sister, Winifred Eaton, and found her story to be I had like a real idea of what I wanted to say and what I wanted to do, but I couldn't do it in 10 pages. I just couldn't make it work. Mm -hmm. And there is a really interesting story there. And I hope one day that we can, you know, work on it more. But it wasn't right for why she wrote. And so, again, like we were saying about those authors in the line that you pulled, like the book isn't an accident. And all of those authors, the, the chapter groupings are really intentional. And I think each of the authors are selected mainly because of their connection to like those subjects and it isn't um they're not grouped just by genre because you know like some of them are poets and some of them are diarists some of them were never published in their lifetime uh, and I think that those connections are are the really interesting ones and it gave us the opportunity to learn about and write about authors that we hadn't heard of initially just to jump off of something that Hannah said just now I think um yeah, I do want to press that this is not a comprehensive list of women writers across time. God knows we are still going. We are in season five of the show and we have so much material. But um, also it's about it's about the ties that bind and things that we discovered along the way while making the podcast. I think essentially first chapter, which we can talk about a little bit later. But I think I, I was seeing a lot of, you know, similarities between Mary Shelley and Charlotte Bronte 
including the sort of like literary pressure that they were both under and how they produced. And I thought that was very similar and wanted to talk about it. So stuff like that. Yeah. I would like to note that as a writer myself or an aspiring writer myself, I found it so comforting to kind of see the struggles that these women faced, especially Austin, who was like in Bath and trying to write and everything was happening around her and she could never find the time. And so many people who were like, why can't I sell my book? Or like, why am I writer's blocked? And why is this taking me 10 years? And like stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I loved seeing those ties amongst them that then I could also see reflected in myself and like think, oh, when this person was 30, she hadn't done anything. And then by the time she was 31, she was famous and like stuff like that. Um, I found it very reassuring and I liked being tied to them like that. That was so the goal. So I'm glad. I'm really, really glad. Yeah. That you said sometimes that. I'm like, sometimes I have nightmares about the parts of the book I, I wrote. And I'm like, I hope these things don't happen to me. And I wake <laughs> up and it's just because we spent so long working on it. And I'm like really aware of like all of these things that happen to them. And I'm like, it's just a dream. It's, I'm not Francis <laughs> Hodgson Burnett. It's okay. <laughs> like I related to it too much. <laughs> I love it. Speaking of all of the different women that you profiled in this, we're curious who, if you can pick, which one is your favorite writer and why? And we can all go through and talk about our favorites and why. I don't know if I have a favorite because I love them all for different reasons, right? Like their life story or, you know, or what they wrote. Um, that's very, very difficult. But I will say this, over the course of doing the show and like reading through all of her work, the person I relate to the most often is usually like Louisa May Alcott. She comes up for me a lot, like every time we do an episode about her and like reading through her journals. And what I love is like she would go and edit her journals. Mm. Like, oh, this is, was a good moment. Oh, I, I should put this in a book. Ooh, no, don't talk about that. Or it's all about <laughs> money. And so I really um, I think about Louisa May Alcott all the time <laughs> so maybe she's my favorite and I love her like gothic thrillers they're so great read behind the mask it's amazing so yeah I really fell in love with George Eliot Marianne Lewis or Marianne Evans call her whatever you want um yeah I'd read Middlemarch at uni and my grandparents are like from the area that she is from and so I grew up like really in a George Eliot saturated life without realizing it probably almost as much as Austin and I just cannot stop thinking about her and something that I really love about that is that Lauren and I are really interested having read a really great book called Secret Sisterhood and I can't remember who wrote that about the relationship between George Eliot and Harriet Beecher Stowe and I think that Harriet Beecher Stowe is to Lauren what George Eliot is to me and I can't like I can't pass a George Eliot biography without just wanting to read it. And I have only read um I just did Silas Marner. Is that it? Silas Marner? Yeah. 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 I just listened to the audiobook of Silas Marner. I haven't read it because you know, I feel like I'm not I don't connect with George. <laughs> but we'll get into that someday on the show. One day. I've never read Harriet Beecher Stowe, but I just um it's just her life. Like her life is is so interesting to me. She's probably the author one of the authors I've read the least of, but just as an individual, I find her really interesting. So it was really nice to work on a comic about someone who was so ostracized for their behavior and how their writing really is the thing that rehabbed them to society and how tricky that was for a long time. 
In the George Eliot comic portion, there was one panel that was like, Happy New Year, George. Happy New Year, George. When they were saying it to each other, I laughed out loud. I loved it. <laughs> I found out this week that he called her Polly because I'm currently reading a book about her. And I was like, oh, no, there is no mention of Polly in that comic or in that essay. I'm like kicking myself. But if you had mentioned Polly in that essay, you would have missed out on an amazing joke. So Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> My favorite has got to be Ann Lister. I had never heard of her before. Um, how had I never heard of the first modern lesbian? I don't know, but I'm obsessed with her. She is so cool with not wearing her bonnets and wearing her little suits. And then the fact that she fell in love with someone else named Anne. Oh my I just... gosh. Yes. Everyone's named Anne. Everyone. Lauren had such a hard time with that in the comic because everyone is named Anne and John. Yeah. Right? Everyone <laughs> across generations. <laughs> this is Molly's number one gripe so far with Jane Austen is that everyone has the same names. John, Fitzwilliam, Fanny. <laughs> Why are we doing this? Some Marys in there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of Marys. <laughs> Everyone's Mary. If they're not a main character, they're just Mary. Mm-hmm. It's easy. Yeah. You're really lucky if you're just starting your you know, your Ann Lister journey, because there's so much really good material to dig into, including, of course, Gentleman Jack. We went to Shibden Hall, which was so much fun. Wow. Um, the meat closet. The meat. Cl- oh, my God. That's all I can think We, like, about. tortured the poor, like, curators <laughs> and volunteers at Shibden Hall. Hannah had a lot of questions about some of the rehabbing that Ann Lister did. Yeah, she did. It's just a room next to the chimney where you dry the meat. But they were like, this is the meat closet. Is that what it was called? The meat closet? Uh, it had like a kind of a more disturbing name, but I cannot remember what it was. <laughs> it just sounds like it really stinks. And I don't know why it's in there. That's so funny. <laughs> I hate it. But also just like the fact that she wrote all of these journals and they were all in code. And then I don't know if this is real or if you dramatized it for the story but her what her nephew or whoever it was who decoded it all yeah and him like everyone thinking that he was gay and him being like they can't find out about you Anne or me I was like that's so beautiful and I was crying yeah John Lister um he yeah absolutely um probably gay uh that I took that from an article that Jill Liddington wrote Jill Liddington is a Ann Lister scholar and she's amazing and um, she's decoded a lot of the journals that you should definitely check out. But yeah, I, it's amazing that, that they think that's probably why he took those journals and yeah, restashed them. Beautiful. I know. <laughs> because we each wrote different portions of the book, like we, um, we wrote like half the book each. For me, one of the most interesting comics to see Lauren working on was the Anne Lister one, partially because it was like, how do I make Anne and Anne look different? And how do I make all of these people called John look different? <laughs> And how do I talk about the future and the past in 10 pages that feels concise? I really loved what Lauren did with it. It's one of the standout comics to me. So yeah, and Lister. Who would have thought it, man, hiding those diaries? That was a difficult one too, because there's a TV show about her life, which we did not encounter with most of the authors. And then also it had not been out when I wrote it. Mm. So I was like anticipating what the TV show might be. And I was like, I want to do something different. So that's why I was like, oh, Anne's a ghost. How about that? I liked her as a ghost. I thought it was awesome. I loved that. That Greta Gerwig Little Women came out after we'd finished writing the book. And there are so many parallels with my bit on Louisa May Alcott. And I was like, I promise I didn't watch the film when I wrote this. I'd written it. I'd already written it. I was sat in the cinema, like, sweating. Really? Greta Gerwig stole the idea from you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's 
Obviously. We're, we're besties. And then she stole my work. No, that never happened. <laughs> Please don't sue me, Greta. Go. <laughs> Greta, if you want to come on this podcast, we'd be happy. Literally to anytime. <laughs> <laughs> so my favorite's totally a cheat uh, because I picked several. Uh, but I loved learning more about the Brontes because I, despite the fact that I've read Wuthering Heights several times, I had a sort of pop culture understanding of Emily Bronte's life, which was like, everyone was surprised that this like invalid woman was able to write this crazy wild story that happens on the moors of England. Uh, And reading about the life of all three Brontes really throws into light why their books were so dark and who they were and how they understood humanity. So I think I, I got a deeper appreciation for the work they put out into the world by learning a little bit more about who they were. I'm one of those people who like, I'll listen to the same bands for years and not know the names of the lead singer. Me too, though. Yeah, same. Yeah. And I'm like that with authors too. I'll be like, oh yeah, I love that book. And then I'll find out like, oh, this happened in the author's life that made this book all the more profound. Uh, so I loved learning about uh, the Brontes more in depth. That's really good to hear because I think we were really torn about putting all three in. And if we should make space for someone else. And as someone who really loves the Brontes and of course been to the Parsonage several times and has dedicated so much time to studying the Brontes, I just like couldn't decide which one had to go. And for me, it felt like I really wanted everyone to understand them as a trio as well and get different perspectives on them. Like Hannah wrote the Anne chapter actually and the Anne comic ends up being one of my favorites in the book actually I loved writing about Anne Bronte Anne is the gateway Bronte for Austin fans so that's good to know I actually Anne was a close the other that Anne was a close second to the Anne that I chose for my favorite um and I thought that having all three of the Brontes like in separate chapters too we got to see them as a as a trio and see different sides of them for each thing so like when we zoomed in on Emily it made so much more sense why in the Anne chapter she was like I'm not going with you to London and I've never read any of their works so to me I I enjoyed getting to know them separate from their works so that now when I probably eventually do read their works I will get to like you know, know a little bit more about them. Also, especially when I go back to Jane Eyre, because I do really want to read Jane Eyre. I did start it once and I I would like to finish it. Molly, you are going to love Anne Bronte 100%. 100%. She is incredible. I'm so excited. She's really good. She's the best Bronte. (laughs) (laughs) Don't read Villette. Don't bother. (laughs) All right. And on that note, I think we're going to dive briefly into each chapter of the book and maybe just ask you guys some quick fire questions about these ladies uh, and different fun things we might have picked up. I did try to make a web of every time Austin was mentioned. You can see I have like my tabs. Oh, nice. Our listeners can't see them, but a few of them did fall out. So when I was going (laughs) through and putting them into the outline so that I would remember where she was mentioned... I've probably missed two of them because two of my taps fell out. Well, the book kind of like at at one point was very much a like six degrees of Jane Austen. So that's why you've got a lot of tabs in there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I loved that because for me, having only read Pride and Prejudice and now part of Sense and Sensibility, I liked seeing what kind of overall vibe Jane Austen imparted upon the world around her slash what was kind of influencing her. That was really interesting to me. So I guess starting out, 
with the horror of the everyday. So Frankenstein is one of my favorite books of all time. My first question is, was Mary Shelley in a thruple? <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's what I'm hinting at there, yeah. <laughs> Listen, the, I think there was like even a spicier cut of that essay that my editor toned down. And yeah, so the romantics, like, first of all, can I just say, like, why do they not have like a Dickinson style show? I do not know, but I would love to write it. Just putting myself out there because <laughs> there is a lot going on sexually there. There's a lot going on emotionally. It's, it's They're all, all in the Lake District raising each other's children. <laughs> Salvi and Shelley got into a fight on that hill. I mean, there's like a lot of stuff going on with the young romantics, the older romantics. I don't know. So um, I say yes. Good. That was my my main question. And then I, I have not read any Anne Radcliffe. Um, the three, just for our listeners, the authors that are mentioned in this chapter are uh, Mary Shelley, Anne Radcliffe, and Charlotte Bronte. Yes. So um, the time that Austen was mentioned in this chapter was that Jane Austen was influenced by Anne Radcliffe. I also love the Anne Radcliffe chapter because I had not heard of her. And what I love about this book in particular is taking authors that were big in their times but somehow haven't come through the timeless canon of the era in the same way someone like Charlotte Bronte or Jane Austen would have. Yeah. So it was interesting to learn about the people who were really the legs on which those women stood. She's very much an author of her time. And can I just say, like, I think one of the reasons why her books haven't aged well is because they are so long and they're so, like, winding I mean these are this is a time obviously when there's no Netflix so she's giving you everything like she's giving you travel and poetry and romance and mystery and so she's just like a lot for the modern reader I think she's also in Becoming Jane have you seen it just when you watch it there's a little cameo of Anne Radcliffe that you'll enjoy yeah that Lauren always she puts it all over the Instagram account it's cute we love an Anne Radcliffe who plays her um Helen McQuarrie who just passed Oh, yeah. Rest in peace. I know. Yeah. Narcissa Malfoy. Yeah. Um. yeah. I have a note based on what I was kind of saying earlier about relating to these women in different ways and kind of seeing my struggles reflected in them. I loved in Mary Shelley's essay where it you mentioned that there was a, a year where she was forced to be inside because of the volcanic eruption. And I really was hoping that my time in quarantine would also produce a Frankenstein. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Well, listen, it took her a while to finish, right? She just got right. started. So, exactly. you know, you still have time. Yes. And I've started two uh, novels during this pandemic. Oh, so good. Hopefully at some point one of them will be done. Yeah. And I have watched all of Breaking Bad. So, <laughs> all right. Uh, that brings us to Charlotte very briefly. Charlotte's got some witchy vibes, I gotta say. She's got a lot going on, Charlotte. <laughs> She's really got like a gothic going on, which I know is like there's a gothic element to Charlotte Bronte's work, but also, I mean, like modern day goth. I mean, I think it would be like a competition between Charlotte and Emily for like who was the bigger goth. I think Emily would probably win. Um, but Charlotte would, Charlotte would feel that very deeply and try to compete. So, <laughs> oh, yes. Exactly. Yeah. There's hugely ghostly elements to the the Bronte stories. There's a lot of haunting going on. Yes. I love whenever women are haunted by things. This is my thing. Yes. And they write a lot about men who are haunted by things as well. So mm -hmm. yes. they, they understand what it means to be really like drawn in and tragically 
uh, rot by your past. I think that they very much were, weren't they? As a family, there was a lot of death in the Bronte family, and you can see it in their work. They were working through a lot of feelings. Yeah, in their novels, <laughs> there was a lot of like death and disease and Howarth at that time. And when you go to the parsonage, it is very striking when you just are con- kind of confronted with this giant graveyard that leads up to their house. I mean, it's it's very goth. It's yeah, yeah. Well, in the intro to that chapter. Something that really struck me was the idea of being haunted by something that isn't actually supernatural. Like Frankenstein's monster is a creature of scientific expertise, you know, like, and the go, did Charlotte Bronte wrote Jane Eyre? Is that? Yes, she did. I, okay. Because this, that fits in with this the, the ghost in the attic is a woman, a human mm-hmm. person. Mm-hmm. So, what you said was that they were using this genre as a way to delve deeper into like their personal experiences and women, what women experience. Yeah. So that was really beautiful to me. And I hadn't thought about that. Like when I read Frankenstein, I did not realize it was written by a woman. I read it, you know, my freshman year of high school. And then when I reread it, I was like, wait a minute. (laughs) Wow. So yeah, I just thought that was really interesting. One thing that we talk about a lot on the show is like, why don't these women just say say the thing? Mm-hmm. Uh, why are they using these devices instead? And it's just, you know, because of obviously because of restrictions, because of creativity. But something I think that's interesting that we're talking about the show right now is like nature writing as sex. Yes. <laughs> right. And we're reading all of this stuff that's like very, very sexy. And people are Landscapes. like, Wait a minute, is this about sex? And I'm like, this is about sex. I mean, Wuthering Heights. Yeah. So... <laughs> A lot of wild nature there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, I think, brings us to the next chapter, actually. Yeah, the next chapter is Finding Their Voice. And this is the one that Jane, our girl, is featured in. But before we get to Jane, the Francis Bernie story haunted me. Oh, I'm glad. <laughs> it haunted me having to research it. So Finding Finding Their Voice was initially pitched, uh, the chapter was called Pride and Prejudice um, Publishing because there's actually a connection between Frances Bernie, Jane Austen and Elizabeth Gaskell in that the title Pride and Prejudice is inspired by Frances Bernie and North and South is in turn inspired by Pride and Prejudice. And so there's this connection between the writing these three women were doing. But actually the more interesting connection was how much they kind of embody that writing doesn't always come easily. There's like emotional blockages, there's physical barriers that get in your way. There's the barrier of what you've written and like the response to that. And the Frances Burney comic is about a letter she wrote about a mastectomy she had with no anesthesia. Is that anesthetic? Yep. Yep. Uh, In France in the early 1800s. And she wrote a letter to her sister about it. And it's one of the earliest accounts of a woman undergoing a mastectomy. And the letter itself is a really brutal read. And I really wanted to write about it. And I read like medical journal articles about it. I read like a lot of articles uh, just about the importance of it and the importance of having like a, a woman talking about this rather than just being a patient, rather than just being a medical record. And I think initially when we first pitched the book, it wasn't going to be like this YA vibe, right? And then so the Francis Bernie comic was a little hard because we are like, can we have boobs in it? Like she's getting, like she's having this operation. Like how do you handle something that is so explicit and violent and naked uh, on the page? 
And so <laughs> I'm sorry if that haunted you. It was a tricky one. Oh, no, in a good way. I mean, I'm glad I read it. It's one of those things where these women had really harsh lives. You read that in the Mary Shelley story as well. I liked that you guys didn't shy away from it. And I think you guys you utilized a very difficult but very interesting and effective technique of alluding to what was happening without having to actually show it. And I think that can be just as powerful and hot, hot my dreams. <laughs> yeah. And the art in that comic was amazing. Like just it really evoked what was going on and like the fact that it was bloody and painful and that she was awake and like it. Yeah, it just was really striking. The full transcript of that letter is available on the British Library's website and I'd really recommend reading it because most of the captions in that comic are the letter, so you're getting a lot of it, but the whole is is one of the most powerful things that I read while like researching uh, for the book. It's it's a lot. And it's all happening in the backdrop of like the Napoleonic War and this postal blockade and just like a really fascinating piece of history. Right. I think that brings us to our girl herself, Jane Austen. Our main squeeze. Yes. <laughs> so we <laughs> we discussed a little bit at the beginning about Bath and her being pooped up and not having time to write. And I just I thought that was so interesting. I did have a question about Northanger Abbey being the first one that she sold. Do you guys know like why that ended up getting pushed back? Yeah, her publisher just didn't bother publishing it. And then she bought it back off them. She earned enough money from writing her other books to buy the manuscript back. But then it's kind of ultimately believed that uh, the book was really it's like a product of its time. Right, Lauren? So it was already suffering when it was published from like the lack of context like the text that she's it's a really referential book it's a book about other books and so the further away from those books you're reading it you lose a lot of the references it's really hard for us to read it 200 years later but people would also have had similar struggles like not getting some of the jokes not getting some of the references when it was finally published after her death so yeah Susan was the first book that she wrote but it it wasn't published until she died and she did try. She wrote a letter to the publisher and she signed it Mrs. Ashton Dennis. Um, and the initials were mad, M-A-D, because she was very angry at them about it. And she yes. bought it back. She bought it back for 10 for ten pounds. What a sassy bitch. I love mm-hmm. her. That's why it's like, she's not just a hobbyist. Like she really wanted to publish. She really wanted her work to be out there. And this whole idea of her just being someone who wrote at home, you know, something to do. That is an image that was really put about by her male relatives. So (laughs) don't listen. Our patrons get little fun facts about Jane Austen. And one of the fun facts we did was we did a little bit about the biography her nephew published Mm. and how Mm. condescending it was. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of like reputational fixing. And it's why we misread some of her books today. I think it's something that came up a lot when we did the Mansfield Park read along was just how that early like reputation protection that they thought they were doing has really affected how modern audiences relate to her work and why she's really picked up by like a lot of conservative readers. Mm. Midsfield Park is not necessarily my favorite Austin, but I think that it is undeniable that in Mansfield Park, without giving things away to Molly, uh, it definitely touches on a lot of stuff that gives you a better sense of Jane Austen's knowledge of the world outside of her little patch of England. 
I just feel like you have to look for it because if you take it on face value and you read it as a romance, which is how we're taught to read it and how we expect to read it, especially based on the adaptations, I do think it's possible to miss it. So I do understand why people's readings of it have been a more shallow reading. That's And that's mm-hmm. definitely what I struggled with the first time I read it. And I don't like Fanny as a as a heroine. And I think I had to come to terms with the fact that, yeah, again, we talk about it on the on the read along, but she's a questionable moral center of the book and it's I think it's intentional that uh we don't always agree with what Fanny's doing because I think you're meant to question what everyone in that book is doing I would suggest too if you guys are able to get a hold of like the play text um something I we've sort of been doing with some of our read-alongs um Kate Hamill actually did a really great version of Mansfield Park a couple of years ago and if you're able to read that too alongside your reading of uh, Mansfield Park. I think it's really interesting. It's great for discussion. Um, it highlights some of those bits of the book that are very relevant for today. Um, just the question, which is a question I think really in almost all of Austin's novels of where is the money coming from? Yeah. Is something that you should just like start with with that book. Mm-hmm. I love that. Becca loves to bring up the money in Jane Austen. It's the economics of the Jane Austen world is very important to how we understand the context of the story. It's fine. Mansfield Park, <laughs> number one on that list, I think, actually. Yes, I'm really struggling to not spoil for Molly because I'm like ready to like <laughs> go on a tangent about it. But uh, we, we got to save it. We got to save it. So the next author in this section is Gaskell. Gaskell? Gaskell. Gaskell. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Gaskell. You smashed uh, it. <laughs> great. Um, and... She's the one who wrote the Charlotte Bronte memoir, not memoir, yeah. biography. Biography. Yeah. Biography. <laughs> this was super fascinating to me um, that people got so angry. People got so angry because she was airing their personal dirty laundry in her book. Mm. She was talking about affairs that living people were having with members of the Bronte family. She was calling a school out, a real school where children had been mistreated and allowed to die, like all sorts of stuff. So the things that people were getting angry about, as well as people that were getting angry about Charlotte Bronte's morals, although we know that Elizabeth Gaskell left a lot of stuff out Mm -hmm. because she was trying to protect Charlotte Bronte's reputation, but she wasn't holding back when it came to other people. And so it was those people who were like, you need to rewrite this or we will sue you. Yeah, I, I thought it was prescient for today slightly because this is sort of how social media works Mm. it's the oversharing 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 and then a huge pushback until it kind of ruins her life I didn't realize the extent to which it affected her life but I think it's beautifully illustrated and I thought I found this one relatable as a sort of worst fear scenario yeah this is this one keeps me awake yeah Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Lauren always says and uh, she always says, like, oh, thank God we write about people that are dead. Yeah. Like, all the time. <laughs> we don't talk about authors that are living. Yeah. <laughs> and a lot of people have been asking us to do, like, Bridgerton stuff. And I'm like, I don't talk about living people. Yeah. <laughs> it's not my bag. <laughs> Never has been my bag. Uh, us two relate. But it, what was most interesting to me was that the reactions were so on opposite ends of the spectrum because the people who were talked about were obviously very angry. But then other people were like, it's a masterpiece. It's brilliant. Great work. It's a beautiful book if you read it too. I mean, it's an amazing yeah, book. Yeah, I bet. What's funny about that chapter is you mentioned the throttle bit from the Mary Shelley chapter. I The first draft of that, I read this book where it was like, 
Elizabeth Gaskell was having an affair and I couldn't verify it from any other like sources it's really contested and so that comic went through so many edits where it was just like I just had to make it less of a romantic relationship between her and Charles Norton. Yes, I was going to ask about that because I was like, wait a minute. Yeah. This seems like something's going on there. And so I also got that vibe. But then she went back to her husband and she didn't say anything about it. So I was like, maybe not, maybe I read into that too far. William Gaskell got a kind rewrite. There was some additional William scenes added. <laughs> it's hard to because like we have strong ties to Gaskell House and everyone loves William Gaskell, us included. Like he's actually yeah, a great him. guy. <laughs> I think Lizzie is just like, kind of flirty you know she's been married a long time she loves traveling she's vivacious you know I think it's just like a really fun flirtation for her it's my read on it but yeah who knows right who's to say who's to say say? (laughs) whomst whomst indeed so that brings us to the next chapter which was one of my favorites activism is art I hadn't delved into any of these writers before like heard their names on the periphery so I was very excited to like get to learn more about them I almost chose Mary Wollstonecraft as my favorite chapter in this it was it was really close because I was familiar with Mary Wollstonecraft's uh feminist work shall we say uh that surrounded the revolutions of the late 18th century I also used to I, I dressed up once but I also used to work at a historical site but I worked in Philadelphia at a historical site and it was Revolutionary War history. So a lot of these uh, these different thinkers of the time period were very much in my periphery. And I loved reading her story. I did not know what an Escandel woman she was. I loved it. Right? I didn't either. I, I definitely had a different image of Mary in my mind before we started researching her for the show. And then I was like, oh, interesting. Okay. <laughs> I was into it. She's a little spicy. She's a little spicy. <laughs> I see what Mary Shelley is trying to live up to, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. It makes me wonder how much Mary Shelley knew about her uh, her mama's excursions. I I loved it. She knew everything. I mean, William Godwin published that book, uh, sort of very similar to the Gaskell biography. Um, He published a biography on his wife, his late wife, and he did everything. He no secrets. He just like let it all out. Like this is an amazing woman. And people were like, whoa, she had a child out of wedlock? What? What's going on? So it was very shocking and scandalous, but uh, William was really open about it. It's like the opposite of what the Austin boys did. That's the thing with with women. Like, there's, You have to be so careful with it because you either erase the, their personality and what they're, they're really about, or you give too much of it away and then you make them a shocking woman, which is what Godwin did to, mm-hmm. to Mary Wollstonecraft. I love that. I love that comic. I thought it was really fun and hearing you talking about it. I think it would be such a good film, Lauren. Her whole life story is like wild. I think the thing about that chapter overall that I found is like the way that we're taught about various like movements, uh, civil rights movements and whatnot. It just seems to have a very clear cut beginning, middle and end. Like this happened and this was the and then this happened and then happy ending. And now we all have voting rights, you know, so it's just always taught to us in this this way. But instead of it, you know, progress is like a really jagged line. And people all have competing motivations and desires for the outcome. And it's messy. Like, it's just all messy. And um, Mary really, I think she thought she was going to go over to France, see this revolution, and then write this amazing book. And then she was like, oh, I'm here. And it's 
it's a total disaster. It's a mess. Like, what's going on? Yeah, that was what I was going to comment on was like, at first, she it almost seemed insensitive how she wanted to go about it. Um, And that she was like, yeah, well, there's there's a war going on. I need to explain why the war is going on. But then there's people in prison and there's blood everywhere. And like she sees this firsthand. And yeah, I loved getting to see that in the comic. Hello, it's Molly from the future hopping in to tell you about a new season of one of my absolute favorite podcasts. Hot and Bothered, hosted by returning Pod and Prejudice guest Vanessa Zoltan, is a podcast that treats romance as sacred. You've probably all already heard of this podcast because in their fourth season, they covered Pride and Prejudice. And now Hot and Bothered is back with a season that is all about romantic films. The first 10 episodes of this new season follow Vanessa as she learns how to critically watch movies by looking closely at the classic 2003 rom-com How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. After 10 episodes, Vanessa will be joined by her co-host Hannah McGregor, a media studies scholar, author, and podcaster. And together, they'll look at romantic films from Casablanca to Love and Basketball to When Harry Met Sally. The show is already so fun after just listening to one episode, and I cannot wait to listen to the rest of the season. So subscribe to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts to jump into this new season that's all about romantic films or to enjoy their previous seasons about Pride and Prejudice, Jane Eyre, and a personal favorite, Twilight. Again, that's Hot and Bothered, and it can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Also, this August, Vanessa is leading a pilgrimage to Bath for a five-day trip dedicated to Northanger Abbey. Now, I don't know anything about Northanger Abbey, but even I want to go on this trip. Together, you and 20 other Austinites are delving into the story of Catherine Moreland while immersed in a gorgeous city that features heavily in Austin's life and writing, as you know. So if you enjoy contemplative hikes, immersion in a new city, time away from your regular life, and the chance to talk about Austin with fans from all over the world, which I know all of you do, then this trip is for you. So check out Common Ground Pilgrimages at readingandwalkingwith.com. To claim your spot on the Northanger Abbey trip, head to readingandwalkingwith.com slash northanger-abbey-2024. And now back to this episode. On the topic of sort of messy intersectionality within voting rights movements, that does give us a great segue into talking about Francis Harper. This chapter was wonderful, and I think it captured uh, some of the best aspects of uh, the women's suffrage movement and some of the worst aspects of the mm-hmm. women's suffrage movement. Mm-hmm. And I loved, I loved reading about uh, her effect on the movement and her struggle with it because again it, it feels very prescient today still thank you i i remember when we did our francis harper episode and i was talking with our expert um who's joanna ortner who's the woman who actually found her lost book poems oh, wow she was i mean just our whole interview was just like oh this is all same stuff different day okay this is all the same so yeah it was our interview just it felt so current and yeah i love the way that that one turned out it Frances Harper was so difficult because she was such an activist for a long time she has a really she's quite a large canon and we just have very little of her we don't have a lot of biographies I think there's one biography that's on the way out maybe in the next two years um, but we don't know a ton about her which, which is really quite shocking for someone who was politically active for like 50 years yeah especially um, I think that there is a lot of missing voices for uh, Black women who are suffragettes. And Mm -hmm. I think that it is really important for women, especially white women, to really make the effort to 
see those women who were fighting, who were fighting for both rights to vote at the same time. Uh, so I, I just loved the way you guys wrote this one. I just thought it was really well done. I especially loved the the last few panels when she's older and there's a younger woman and then like a child and the middle woman is like, I saw her speak when I was this girl's age. And uh, she comments on how not much has changed in all these years. And uh, the response is, well, I better keep on talking and writing so that they do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. That just like encapsulates all of what we were just talking about. Because I do feel like she really handed the baton in a way to people like Alice Dunbar Nelson, honestly. Yes. Next in the and book. Yeah, next chapter. I loved the segue. That was great. Thank that you. was great. <laughs> we're doing this with all the beauty and grace of a Saturday morning post-vax <laughs> long COVID. <laughs> and just in my case, wearing sweatpants that are too large for me. It's the way to go. So all of our struggles are the same. Is what <laughs> um, so the Alice Dunbar Nelson bit was also incredibly wonderful to read. Um, she had so few shits to give. And it was wonderful. <laughs> yeah. And I love that you guys uh, picked up the fact that uh, she was a queer woman living through the Harlem Renaissance. Yes. Many queer women living through the Renaissance, uh, Harlem Renaissance. It's something that we're going to talk a little bit more about later on this year on the podcast. It's something that I could write a whole book about. <laughs> but yes, uh, what's interesting about Alice Dunbar Nelson, again, Another author that has a huge canon that was active for a long time. There is one bio- bi- biography coming out soon. <laughs> um, I talked to this person who was writing the biography for the show. But yeah, we don't have a ton of information on her. But she did leave journals just like Ann Lister. And so I think writing this was really difficult because I was trying to get a handle on her personality. And I think it's really hard with her, especially because her journals are very much a place where she goes to vent. Mm. And so you're just getting sort of all of her struggle and anger in these journals and gossip and whatnot. But you're not really you don't really know like who she is to other people, um, because I'm guessing someone as like successful as she was and great at like, you know, networking and whatnot. She was not you know, venting at them all of the time. I'm sure she was like very charming and yeah. So difficult chapter to write in that sense, but her poetry is so lovely and her short stories are amazing. Please check them out. The poem that you included in the comic, I Sit and I Sew, is just so gorgeous. And I was like, I need to read more of this now. Alice Dunbar Nelson's one of those authors, like you were saying, Lauren, where you had to go and find an expert, right? Because it was important for her to be in the book. And there has been criticism of the book, and I think it's fair criticism that there aren't a lot of women in color covered, but they're not remembered. And like there aren't biographies and their works aren't available. And a lot of reaching out, a lot of conversations happened, especially for the Alice Dunbar Nelson comic that Lauren wrote. And I think it's a testament to her inclusion in there that Lauren like had the patience and the time to seek her out because she felt like it was an important author to include in the book. And I'm like so thankful for that research that Lauren did like on that chapter because otherwise it would have just been white women activists yeah because that's who's available so I think too for me as a woman of color it's important to get their stories done and it's important to get them done right this is something that we want to work on more in the future but we also have to change the framing of our future books and we have to change the framing of the way that we do research essentially something that I'm writing now and I I like stumbled across a quote the other day and I believe this woman's name was Margaret Ezell 
But she said that like the literary histories that we're presented with are way more diverse but chaotic than what we like plan for. And so I think we on the show and for the book have just done a lot of traditional research. And now we have to change our our brains and get more in this like chaotic way of thinking and look for things in a different way for some of the episodes that we're producing and also some of the future work that we're producing. Well, history is always formed by the present in my mind, and it is incumbent upon us as people who enjoy things from the past to reach back and also find things that are less covered because they were erased. So that's that's the work of our generation and us individually as people with platforms to form history based on the current present, which is a present that understands that, hey, there were not just white people in mm-hmm. uh, these time periods. It's not like black people magically appeared in 1950. Right, <laughs> right. And they weren't just straight people and they weren't. Just, yeah, exactly. Like Molly getting to learn about Ann Lister. <laughs> yes, I was going to say, I loved how so many of the women that you covered in here were clear, whether that's Alice Dunbar Nelson, who had relationships with men and women, or Ann Lister, who was really, really gay, or Mary Shelley, who was in a throuple. Louisa May Alcott, probably. Yeah. How many more of these women would we know about if the conversations and the language that we used to speak about sexuality and gender and stuff were like was the same then, you know? Right. And again, with the book, it's called Why She Wrote. None of the authors that we're writing about like identify as non-binary or identify as trans to our knowledge because those are conversations that we are publicly having now right but we don't like you can't say that for sure about a lot of women like how would Ann Lister have identified if she was alive today right we don't know right oh my god yeah it just will get you thinking like I could think about Jane Austen I mean a major theme on our podcast is me calling out everyone who I think is gay or queer in some way in those books and like perhaps they were a reflection of a different side of Jane Austen that she didn't feel comfortable writing out loud totally speaking of queer women that yeah <laughs> can take us to our next chapter here and the next chapter is about private lives and obviously this is the chapter with Emily Bronte in it uh, but it is also the chapter with Molly's gal and Lister. My new fave. You are going to love those diaries. Like some of them are really spicy. Too. Oh, like, I cannot. They're wait. amazing. <laughs> I'm so excited. And we'll talk to you about like her dildos. It's amazing. <gasps> yes. Oh, my what, gosh. What does one make a 19th century dildo out of, out of oh, curiosity? She'll break it down for you. Don't worry. <laughs> oh, my God. I just love that she literally invented a language to journal about these things. And like, I don't know. I journal when I'm journaling. I'm sometimes like, I guess because throughout the years, there are a lot of journals that you read and required reading in high school and stuff like that. And seeing all of these people whose journals became published after they died, I kind of terrifying. Yeah. All all throughout my life, I'm always like, maybe someone will read this someday. But in more recent years, I'm like, no one's actually going to read my journal. So I'll just like really lay it out there. And she was thinking the same thing. Maybe someone's going to read this someday. And wrote it in a different like an invented language amazing her crypt hand i thought that was so badass it's really badass and then they they were still published and they were still discovered they they literally decoded it's funny that they found it and then they were like this has got to go back in the wall 
Yeah, like, <laughs> these parts have got to go. It's too soon. It's too soon. One of the absolute best things about this illustration is how much it's illustrated people sweating and the Ann Lister chapter. It's just men reading her journal and just sweating. <laughs> just like, oh, no, what have we <laughs> like, discovered? <sighs> well, I do love that it became in, like an obsession for John to like when he discovered these journals. And it makes sense. Like he was a historian. He's like, oh, what am I going to find about local history and all of this stuff? And then. Of course, there's these bits that are in code. And you're like, what? what is she saying? I've got to know. And then it became so much more personal for him. I Okay, so first when I was reading this, I was like, is the show, because you mentioned in the, the opening essay that there's a show based on her life, um, which, like you said at the beginning of the podcast, wasn't out yet. But I, at first I was like, is it Anne with an E? Because she has an E at the end of her name and <laughs> the other Anne doesn't. But now I know that that's not, <laughs> it's not the case. Um, but I really want to watch the show because while I was reading this, I'm a playwright and I was like, this has to be a play or like, this has to be a novel. Like her life is so fascinating yeah. and her life past her life is so fascinating. The decoding is fascinating. Yeah, it's uh, there's like too much material with Ann Lister, honestly. Uh, so that was really kind of hard to tackle in like a really short, tight little story, which is why I kind of there was a lot of back and forth between us and our editors. Like, OK, is this like too focused on John? And I was like, I know, I know, like a man is sort of at the center of this story, but I think he's going to be the vehicle to help us like see different parts of her life because there's so many different parts of her life that are really interesting and you're going to just, I, again, you're going to have such a great journey ahead of you reading the journals, which are fascinating. There's so many out there. Um, definitely check out the Anne Shoma book. It's amazing. She's working with Sally Wainwright, who does the show, Gentleman Jack, and they're still decoding and they're decoding Ann Walker's journals as well and or transcribing them because I think some of the handwriting is really difficult. And Sally Wainwright also did the Bronte movie to Walk Invisible. So she's up there. She's like, She's tackling all of these ladies. She's living my dream life. Oh, man. I'm so excited to just dive into all of that. And and what you did in these 10 pages was get me excited to go do more of my own, like, digging. So thank you I'm glad. for that. I'm so glad. We're just going <laughs> to abandon Jane Austen for the podcast, and it's just going to be an Ann Lister stand podcast <laughs> from now on. Pod and Ann Lister. <laughs> yeah. That brings us to my girl, Emily Bronte. What a queen. What I love about this chapter is that it really goes on, first of all, the perception of Emily from everyone around her and how she sort of pulled herself away from everybody else. And I also love that you guys really tackled the fact that she really loved the outdoors and that's so prevalent in all of her work. Mm -hmm. For those who haven't read Wuthering Heights, it's kind of hard to to describe how much the Moors are a character in Wuthering Heights. Yeah, and her poetry as well. I mean, it, I feel like it's all sort of started outdoors, right? I feel like she goes, that's where she goes to think. That's where she's like the most at peace or at home. And I feel like that's where all like the, the composition begins out there. Um, and then she uses various like n natural elements to kind of like weave her way into her work. We're doing Ellen Montgomery right now on the podcast. And I feel like I've been seeing a lot of parallels between Emily's writing and her poetry and what Ellen Montgomery does very effortlessly with with nature as well. So, yeah, Emily was one. I mean, she's my one of my favorites. We've done a lot of episodes on Emily, including a panel that we did at the Parsonage, which was called like I think we we're like decoding Emily or discovering Emily, where we had various Emily experts on this panel just talking about myths and misconceptions and like who was Emily. And like she still is just like a big question mark 
right? We just, we don't really know. And yeah, I was really like, oh, should I cut Emily from the book? But then I also loved that she like may have known Anne Lister. You know, I thought that that was really cool that they may have crossed paths. And um, also, I just wanted to put her in context with the other Brontes because I know some, so many people don't know who wrote which. And I was like, let's clear that up for anyone that reads the book. Like me. <laughs> yeah. But also that because I have such a close relationship with Emily, I think writing about the authors that we are very, very close to or that we love was actually maybe a little bit extra difficult because I haven't worked out my feelings on her and I feel like I project onto her. So that's why you have like a panel like in my high school classroom where I'm just like, what does this mean? Like, I don't know what's going on. I don't know who she is. I'm confused. So, yeah, I think I'm just trying. I'm still trying to work out my feelings on her and who she is. I really just loved getting to know all three of them as a trio. I loved that their pseudonyms were this. They had they were like Acton, Ellis and Kerr Bell. Yeah, <laughs> that weird names, weird names. Yeah, weird names, but that they started with the same letter as their names. I really want to read these Gondal poems. They're really interesting. I'm currently in the midst of reading the Lord of the Rings series for the first time. Mm-hmm. Mm. I was going to say Gondor too. <laughs> well, also, I, what I was going to say is I hear a lot that uh, J.R.R. Tolkien really like the father of fantasy, but to hear like that these Bronte sisters were creating a fantasy world well before Tolkien mm-hmm. was is kind of one of those things where I'm like, oh, damn, I wish they'd really run with that a little bit more. So yeah, they could, yeah. They could steal the spot. Oh, yeah. man, yeah. If we could go back in time. No offense, Tolkien, but a little bit. Also, he's the father of fantasy, but, like, I've listened to the Lord of the Rings audiobooks. I've not, like, read them uh, for the first time, like, in 2019. And if you think about it as him writing about the First World War, especially by the time you get to the stuff with all of the orcs and they get to, like, Moria, I mean, he's the father of fantasy. He's writing about war. He's writing about being at war. He's writing about being in the trenches. He's writing about what he knows so, like, just so deeply, which is what the Brontes are kind of doing to an extent. But I actually think they're doing something very different and very powerful. It feels like less direct. Like, it's less about, like, them, right? Yeah. Does that make sense, It's bit, like their, um, their childhood writings are very much like D&D. And so if you like this book, you will probably also like a book by our friend Isabel Greenberg called Glass Town, um, which actually we have the same publisher, Abrams Chronicle. You can get it from them. But um, it, it is about the the Brontes, like childhood, their juvenilia. And yeah, it's like D&D. It's fantasy. And um, I think for Emily, it was very much for her, right? This is like her escape. And I do think that it just wasn't for anyone else. And I don't think she thought anyone else would get it or needed to get it I think if Emily had her way if she lived in a different time period she just or or if she had even been born a different class she would have just been like you know what I'm just happy being a housekeeper or just a baker and I just write on the side for fun like this is not you know not to reduce her to a hobbyist or an accidental genius but I don't think that was like her true her joy wasn't coming from publishing that was very much Charlotte's drive. Yeah, publication is very much not a motivator for all of the women covered yeah. in the show. It doesn't need to be a dirty word for the ones who were. Like, it's not offensive to say that Jane Austen was motivated by money and fame and publication. Mm-hmm. But in the same way, yeah, there are going to be women who are writing. Like the Frances Burney, it's, she's writing to her sister. That is not a letter that she's like, 
this is going to be in a museum one day and like Emily is not writing so that everyone's like Emily Bronze let's talk about her mm-hmm. like she would hate this she's probably spinning <laughs> well she's a relatable lady she is and I I love that because something that I talk about with my therapist a lot as an artist and a person who works in theater and podcasting is whether or not I am working because I am doing things that aren't earning me money all the time. I'm always like, oh, I didn't get anything done today. And either my therapist or my mom or my friends will be like, Molly, you literally like edited your podcast for two hours and then wrote a chapter of a novel and then like this and that and the other thing. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess I did do that. And what you get at in this book is that just because you're doing something not to be published or to be published, like it doesn't make you less valid in that that's what you do so like totally she was writing really writing and just because she didn't really want the recognition for it it doesn't make it any less of a valid path Mm -hmm. so I loved that Emily anecdote I bought her 300 page book of poetry and as I was buying it in the bookshop the young lady at the tilt said to me it's a shame she didn't write more and I was like, this book is 300 pages. Right, <laughs> right. What do you want? What do you want? When is it? When she is died it pretty young. Like, what are we? Yeah. <laughs> what is the output that would make sense for you? Yeah. <laughs> this is something that artists talk about a lot is like the love of the art versus the business of the art. And making art your job is something that requires a separate skill set and a separate drive and passion than the art itself. Now, if you're a person who just wants to make art, no shame in that. But if you're a person who wants to, you know, make art for a living, you have to learn how to network. You have to learn how to get an agent. You mm-hmm. have to learn how to do all these specific things. So if you compare like an Emily Bronte to a Jane Austen, Emily Bronte is just sitting there being like, okay, how is this rhetoric fitting into this poem? Does it capture what I want it to capture? Whereas Austen's like, all right, I've written my book. Now I need to understand how I can push it to the publication stage. Yeah. And that's just a different brain. And it doesn't mean either one of them is a better or worse artist. It just means they have different priorities of how they want their art to be perceived by the world or not perceived in Emily's case. Mm-hmm. But, and that's exactly the Bronze's though, like the three of them and their relationship to each other and how Charlotte is different to Emily and Anne is different to Emily and Charlotte all together. And yeah, I think that's one of the benefits of having them all in the book and not just having them is that it's really easy to be like the Bronze's are all motivated by the same things and they all wanted the same things and they're and like but it just isn't the case at all and like their relationships with each other are also different they don't all have the same relationship with both of their sisters they don't all have the same relationship with their dad or their brother Mm -hmm. and you don't often get that it's very complex yeah yeah you don't yeah and I think yeah their their relationship to publishing could fill books Mm-hmm. especially Charlotte's. <laughs> so the next chapter is Elizabeth Barrett Browning, and this is the sexy chapter. Yes. Love romance. How this is not a movie yet, I don't know. Um, I mean, there was one early movie, but I think I want to say it was in the 40s, and there was a play based off, off of their romance. And I know there was a film in development with Rachel Weisz, which like needs to come out. Oh, my God. I mean, come on. Like, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, ill- trapped in her home just producing you want to talk about producing like Elizabeth Barrett Browning just wrote the hell out of everything yeah and I think one of the biggest things that I I learned about her she's an author I didn't cover in school so I didn't really know very much about her before the show but just that she is remembered for these love poems but she was writing very very serious works actually she was really um doing all these like 
translations as well. She was a very serious academic, um, also very motivated by Mary Wollstonecraft, who she loved. And uh, then just, yeah, Robert Browning is just like, I love you. Since this love letter, I want to be with you. I want to marry you. And she's just like, what the hell? He just like straight up slid into her DMs. He absolutely (laughs) did. He absolutely did. What a joy. Yeah, he he was bold. He was really bold. Given that and he was persistent. Hey, gentlemen, shoot your shot. If you like feel like there's a person out there who uh, you're into and you feel like could be a kindred spirit, maybe do send them a DM confessing your ardent love. But it's better if it's a letter, a handwritten letter with a wax seal. Do that instead. Yeah. If any strange man I've never met send me a letter in the mail, I'm going to be very upset. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know. How did you get my address? Why is your handwriting so neat? Like <laughs> That is something I was, I was a little bit like, this is a little <laughs> bit weird. The fact that he sent one and then she didn't, respond to that or she did she he was just persistent he was pretty persistent I mean I think he was also encouraged and I cannot remember if I included this or not because it's a lot it's kind of like a long lead up into their stuff but he was producing this work and people were like he's okay mm-hmm. like he's fine mm-hmm. and she was like a literary superstar and she in a publication was like actually he's quite good oh yeah that was in there so and he latched like, onto that and he was like oh she does know me she does know me and she likes me okay. they're like mutuals yeah they're, they're mutuals. the equivalent of mutuals aren't they they're not like yeah complete strange oh yes yeah <laughs> kind of like uh lizzo sliding into harry styles dms <laughs> <laughs> the same thing happened with um alice dunbar nelson and her first husband she like had a poem published and i believe her photo was also in the paper next to the poem and he just like found her and he was the literary superstar and he was like, you're gorgeous. We should get married. <laughs> Is he the one that ended up being abusive in the end and they mm-hmm. separated? Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, if, gentlemen, if you're going to shoot your shot, make sure you're not a garbage bag to the yeah. lady you shoot your shot with. Yeah. So should we move on to public identity? We yeah. should. <laughs> Let's do it. Okay. So the first one is Edith Maud Eaton. And I had never heard of her. And this was super interesting to me. Just the fact that she was writing true things, but kind of making them, not fictionalizing them, but making them read like a novel. That's the kind of thing that I like to read. So I wondered about, I I think it's interesting that you included this one in the public identities chapter, because I thought this could have also gone in the activism chapter. My read on it was this was very much activism for uh, those Chinese immigrants coming to America. So listeners, uh, if you haven't heard of Edith Maud Eaton, we found out from this wonderful book that Edith Maud Eaton was um, a Asian British woman who was half Chinese, half white mm-hmm. in ethnicity. Yeah, her father was British and her mom was Chinese, but she grew up in Canada. It's all yeah. very confusing. <laughs> <laughs> um, and in this time period, uh, this was when the Chinese Exclusion Act was enacted in America, which was a very discriminatory law that was uh, basically punishing these Chinese railroad worker- workers who came over uh, to America to help build the railroad system. So the system was built on their backs and then Unfortunately, there was a lot of anti-immigrant vitriol that came out around the Chinese immigrants. And uh, basically, the law was making it illegal to immigrate from China. Uh, And so Edith Eaton, her activism comes through in her basic her defense of Chinese immigrants in North America. And the story, as I read it, very much was her fighting for 
people who were voiceless under a pseudonym, which was I thought was great. And that protected both her and the people she was writing about, which is why it, you know, makes sense for this chapter in public identities. She was like, this is not just about me. It's about everyone I'm writing about. There's a lot of authors that are covered in the book who would easily fit into like three, if not four, if not all of the chapters. And one of the reasons that Edith Eaton, to me, makes sense in the public identities book is because one of the reasons that she was empowered to write and given the position to write on these topics is because she was white passing. And so her public identity is that she is a white woman. And her private identity is that her mother is Chinese and that she is half Chinese. And so are her siblings in a society that completely pushes them down. Living in a country which borders on a country that it's shut, like, it's completely shut its borders. So she was growing, she was raised in in Canada and her father was smuggling Chinese workers into America. And it was the same uh, with the Mexico border. The border between America and Mexico was initially guarded to stop Chinese workers from crossing from Mexico into America. And so that's why for me, it makes sense for her to be in public identities because it's very much how she is seen and she writes a lot outside of her journalism about the things that people would say to her because of who they perceived her to be they thought that she was a white woman and so they would speak very candidly about their disgust of the Chinese to her face because they didn't think she was and certainly at the time of researching and writing this chapter we were not going through the current climate like a post-covid world and like the extreme rise of anti-Asian hate that we're experiencing. And so it has been really strange and upsetting to see that come like just crashing upwards, not out of nowhere because it has not come from nowhere. Um, The Chinese Exclusion Act, I believe, wasn't lifted until the 1940s, but I might have gotten that date wrong. So, I mean, this really is like deeply rooted in the heart of America. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, as a white British woman, I've got to say, like, I really got a lot out of researching Edith Eaton, but it's not something that I can say that I, like, deeply related to. And I think that is tricky as an author when you're having to represent someone whose experiences do not line up with your own. But you can say that again about, like, many of the authors that we cover, because life 200 years later is quite different. It is quite different. (laughs) Yeah. But it is sad that a lot of these stories are still, like, horribly relevant today. Right. Yeah. Yeah, this one especially. One part where the publisher says, smuggling them into America by canoe, what will they think of next? And that's like kind of an example of what you were saying of them. She's white passing. They're like, what will they think of next? And her response is maybe they'll think of changing the law. And (laughs) uh, I mean, the law may be changed, but really it's like what you were just saying. The rise of anti-Asian hate is not coming out of nowhere. And even though the law isn't necessarily enforcing it it's depends on who's in power and you know we won't get too deeply into the politics of it but yes scarily relevant today one of the reasons I was drawn initially to writing about uh Winifred her sister who's one of the authors that we ended up not covering was that she actually wrote under a Japanese sounding pseudonym because Japan was still seen as acceptable and exotic because they didn't have like a migrant workforce in the same way And when Edith died, Winifred published an obituary which said that their mother was a Japanese noblewoman. 
to further extend like her public identity. Wow. The Eaton sisters are super interesting. There's a really great book called Becoming Susan Far by Mary Chapman that collects a lot of previously unknown works of Edith Maud Eaton's because she wrote anonymously for a long time. She wrote under various different pen names uh, that I really recommend reading. Um, yeah, she's a really interesting author and her sister's really interesting. And there is so much to their story that isn't covered in wifey, right? I'm definitely going to look into that because yeah, that sounds too. amazing. That actually brings us to our next chapter, which is uh, Marianne Evans, a.k.a. better known as George Eliot. My gal. Yeah. What Ooh. a hero. <laughs> this was a like a drama filled chapter. There was <laughs> there was a lot of scandal in this chapter. Scandal. I did not know that George Eliot's life was so enraptured in scandal. Tip of the iceberg. My. Honestly. Mm-hmm. Tip of the iceberg. She the spiciest life. She was just sleeping with everyone's husband. Oh, I love it. <laughs> and I say that lovingly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Listen, it's charming like a hundred years later. <laughs> <laughs> but also deeply sad. Yes. Yeah, she's a sad story. <laughs> yeah. There's so much to say about her. Um, I mean, it, it makes so much sense to be in public identities because she wanted to write. She's one of those women who wanted to be, you know, her writing to be out there. But in order to be taken seriously, she had to change the name. First of all, she changed her name to show that she was with this man. Like she took his name because she loved him, even though he even though it was like deeply rooted in scandal and like she shouldn't be with him and they're not married. But she took his name and then that was too scandalous, so she had to publish under a different name, and then she took his name in a different way, being George. Just, I loved everything about it. Should have titled that one, like, Call Me By Your Name, Hannah. <gasps> yeah, I should. <laughs> <laughs> so, the the thing that's funny with Marianne Evans, Marion Lewis, or George Eliot, depending on what you want to call her, is that she was born Marianne Evans. Um, she, as a young woman, started going by Marion rather than Marianne. Uh, and then Lewis was the surname of the man that she lived with as man and wife. She considered their relationship to be godly, holy, a religious bond. She wasn't like anti-religious about it. Like she really loved him. And so they lived together as man and wife, although he couldn't legally divorce his first wife. And then she had like this whole career as an editor and translator and writer under her own name. And it was when she began publishing novels which was after she had run away to Europe with George Henry Lewis, that she didn't feel like she could write under her own name. And it's worth knowing as well that a lot of people, her friends would still call her Miss Evans, but she went by Mrs. Lewis. And it was very hurtful to her that even the people that she chose and the people that she was closest with would often like misname her. And they'd like reference the fact that she wasn't really married, but she was in, in, in her eyes. And so... Publishing as George Eliot was a way of getting her work published, even though even when her John Blackwood first knew that George Eliot was Marion Lewis, he was like, no, no, we should probably just keep this coming out as George Eliot. And it was, you know, she had friends that were like, you should publish under your own name. It's fine. And then she had other friends who were like, absolutely do not reveal who you are because this will ruin your career. But eventually it was she became too famous. She sold too many books like she could not be denied. It is really sad because their relationship seems to me 
to be very loving and healthy and the fact that it's just based on a formality that people were like this is scandalous and you can't reveal this or you won't be published it'll hurt your career like it is so sad and romantic and again kind of prescient this is still how it's treated if you steal somebody's husband Mm -hmm. look at the Look at the team Jennifer versus team Angelina debate. That was like, I know that was like 15 years ago, which makes me feel older. (laughs) I just found out about that recently. Wait, you just found out about that? In the last like three years. That's so funny. Oh Oh my God. So Molly's a few years younger than me. I'm like two years younger than you, Becca. Okay, first of all, well, so here's the thing. The the basic premise of our podcast is spoiler-free Jane Austen. Like how do you become spoiler-free on Jane Austen? These books have been out for 200 years. Spoilers really just go over my head if I'm not steeped in the culture of the thing. Sure. So that whole Jennifer Angelina thing, I just found out about it when I got really into Friends in 2017. So yeah, news to me. (laughs) (laughs) I miss those days. I need another like celebrity, like divorce scandal. Come on. Why didn't more people get divorced in the pandemic? What are you guys doing? (laughs) I know. All I do is talk about the Emma Thompson Kenneth Branagh one over and over and over again. <laughs> uh, messages me all the time about it. Yes. Like, what happened? Like, I wasn't oh, there, Lauren. Kenneth <laughs> messed up. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. 100%. Can I just put about George Eliot? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if I can just get it. I love Kenneth Branagh, but let me just take it away from him. He would be great in the adaptation of the story of this. Ooh. That would be great. Good segue. So George Eliot is another one of those um, authors and women who I think that had they been alive today, there maybe would be remembered differently. The relationship that she had with George Lewis and then is his name, John Cross, that she remarried after his death uh, to a much younger man. Those relationships, her heterosexual relationships really define her. There's a lot of mm, about her relationships with women also. She had a very devoted following from um, women that were fans of her work. And definitely the book that I'm reading at the moment is probably leaning into that more than any other that I've read and like the nature of those relationships. And I think it's believed that with two of the women, if not more, they were like romantic in nature and that George Henry Lewis was like, this is great. He just wanted her to be happy. That was his thing. And that Uh, was the success of their relationship. So he was like, if these relationships are making you happy, that's fine. And then that, you know, he was in a marriage experiment with Agnes, his first wife. She didn't just have an affair. It was an open relationship, which in Victorian times gets really difficult because he acknowledged her children that weren't his. And then he legally wasn't able to divorce her. And so there's a lot going on there. And I love George Eliot. I just the so interesting so she's basically was she having like groupie sex yeah yeah thank god i think a (laughs) lot i think a lot of people were but we were like how much how much groupie sex can we put in this there is an e on this podcast so you can talk all about the groupie sex you want here (laughs) i think it's by Catherine o'shaughnessy i can't the book that i read while i was researching the book was called george Eliot in love and that was a great book loved that book and now I'm reading In Love with George Eliot, <laughs> which is a different book. And it's so interesting to me that we have to frame George Eliot in relation to her romantic relationships. Mm-hmm. But actually, for a woman who is so revered for her mind and also desexualized because she isn't considered conventionally attractive, I actually think it's really important that like her sensual side, her like physical side, that, that is reclaimed because like 
funny is ugly women have sex too so like why not and there was a bit when we were doing the artwork for this comic I really purposefully wanted to kind of capture that they had this really physical and intimate relationship which is why there's like a bed shot of them like in bed together because it's like their legacy really ties into the fact that they were hot for each other. Yeah. Oh yeah. So I really, I really wanted to get them naked. I'm glad that you did. <laughs> right on. I love that. Um, I'll also note that George Eliot did not like Jane Austen. Oh yeah, no, she no. didn't like many women. No. <laughs> <laughs> There's a really great essay she writes about it. Oh God, something lady novelist. Silly maybe. Silly lady novelist. Silly novels by lady novelists. Yeah. I mean, yeah. She kind of presents herself as the cool girl she's into charlotte bronte she's down with charlotte she was really educated her parents took one look at her as a baby and they were like this kid is not getting married so we need to educate her so she learned like latin she learned greek she learned german she was like she was very intellectual and initially it was her intellect that was kind of giving her that entrance into society and so i think that she intellectually felt very alienated from women who were generally not as well educated as she was because of how society treats women. So, and she takes she takes it out on the women, yeah, on other yeah. women writers. Yeah, she definitely thought she was cooler. Yeah, 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 some internalized misogyny going on with George Eliot for sure. For sure, what a complex <laughs> figure. I love it. My favorite Bronte sister is next. I think Anne Bronte. Uh, just such a quiet, cool person. I was I was fascinated. Um all of these conversations happening around her and in the comic it really shows through like for the listeners there was a scandal where they're all publishing all three sisters are publishing under male names and one of the publishers claimed that one book was written by the by which one Anne's publisher newbie was claiming that the author of the tenant of wild fell hall was the same as the author of jana is that right, Lauren? Yeah, because uh, Jane Eyre was a super success, right? Mm-hmm. And then they're like, oh, well, we also have this book yeah, yeah. by the same author. And yeah, incorrect, incorrect. And Charlotte's publisher were like not having it. They were like, yeah, they're like, what the hell? You owe us a book. What are you, are you writing yeah. for this guy too? Yeah, and so Charlotte was like, we have to go straighten this out right now. And she and Emily are like fighting in the comic and Anna's sitting there like, what about... The fact that it's my book that we're talking about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I just love her. She seems so complex and sweet and that there's so much going on there. But is she the youngest? She is. Anna's the baby. So I feel like she probably felt overshadowed. Has there ever been a more stereotypical oldest, middle, and youngest than the three Brontes? <laughs> I know. I yeah, know. that's true. And then you throw Branwell into the mix. And there's a lot going on just there. Just screaming and stamping and drinking. <laughs> so yeah, there is a lot going on there. Uh, gotta love Anne, though. Another book recommendation, please read Take Courage by Samantha Ellis. It's a beautiful biography of Anne. Yeah, it really, um, I read that when I was like researching for it. And it really, it really helped me get a sense of her because not a lot of Anne has survived and partially that's Charlotte Bronte's fault. Uh, but we won't go into a huge amount. There's not like a lot of surviving letters. Um, that preface that she wrote for the second edition of The Tenant of Wildfell Hall, I think you really feel her fire in that. Um, so it was a real treat to, to write about that kind of moment in her career. Love that. All right, I think that takes us to our final chapter, which is Protection and Profit, which uh, details these sort of paradoxically children's authors who were very intent on the business of their work. 
this I loved because with this chapter, I had read books by all three women, mm. which I don't think is uncommon. So Beatrix Potter wrote the very famous Peter Rabbit books. Amongst others. Amongst others. But uh, those were the ones that I personally grew up with. And I think they're ones that most people know. Right. So it was lovely to see her um, affinity for children through the story. And I think this one in particular lent itself so well to comic because I loved looking at the little uh, creatures she created uh, through her own eyes and through her own hard work because it takes the little illustration of Peter Rabbit and brings it forward into showing the blood, sweat, and tears that went into creating him. Beatrix Potter was one of the rare writers we covered in the book who actually came from money. She was financially a very well-off woman, but she wasn't independent because her parents were very kind of outside of society. Um, and they really wanted to keep Beatrix around to be their carer. And so for her, writing was a way of kind of getting out from underneath them and from getting out of that grasp. And so every single pound really meant something to her. She hated the fact that her works weren't copyrighted in America and that they were bootlegged so much. And she blamed her publishers for that. And the reason that Beatrix Potter is remembered as well as she is, is because there were so many products and because she created licensing. Like that's why we remember Peter Rabbit. And it's it's all from what she did. I was on a call the other day with some male friends of mine and they were talking about George Lucas and Star Wars. And I was like, have you heard of Beatrix Potter? And yeah. I really got on my soapbox <laughs> about it. And I was like, I think you're really going to like this one chapter and why she wrote. So you can stop talking about those bloody lunchboxes, please. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Like got yeah. really angry. <laughs> and as someone who has worked in licensing with Lucas, it's the same <laughs> model. It's the same exact model. Unreal. Also, that is very cool. <laughs> that is so cool. Very our brand. And it's so true that people totally overlook Beatrix Potter and jump straight to the man who did things publicly in America. This whole chapter and her whole story, if there's not already, there probably is a movie about her, but if there isn't already, this would be a really excellent, heartwarming, women-empowering tale of her writing. I feel like it exists already, but writing these books and then fighting for it to be recognized as her own and like making these dolls. Oh my gosh. It just, it reads like one of those movies, you know? <laughs> there is a super lovely biopic called Miss Potter starring Renee Zellweger and Ewan, uh, McGregor, Ewan McGregor, my husband. But it's about her relationship with her publisher, Norman Warren. And it's a lovely film and she talks to animated animals in it and it's very sweet. But again, I think it really adds to the idea that Beatrix Potter was a woman that spoke to imaginary <laughs> animals rather than being someone who is like obsessed with money. Right. I think I've seen it and I just need to Google it really quick because that might be what I'm thinking of exactly. Yeah. That brings us to our next chapter, which is somebody else pronounce it. Is it Hodgson or Hog? I love that she has problems with it too because we both do and we've talked about this on the podcast and people are like, I always call her Frances Hodgson Benet. I know. <laughs> Why do we always mess up her last name? It's Frances Hodgson Burnett. Frances Hodgson Burnett. Yeah. Frances Hodgson Burnett. I did not know that maybe I did somewhere in the back of my mind, but that the Secret Garden and the the Little Princess were the same 
person. I remember having that with Fleetwood Mac once when I realized all the songs that they'd written. That's amazing. <laughs> You're like, Stevie Nicks. <laughs> Stevie Nicks is to music what FHB is to lit. <laughs> exactly. This one resonated with me as a theater person. We adapt stuff for the stage all the time. And usually, I mean, in my mind, when I'm conceptualizing things that I would like to one day adapt for the stage. They're usually things that are in the public domain already. Um, But the fact that this man took her book word for word and put it on the stage, she was rightfully upset. And I love that she just went after it with all that she had. That had happened to her twice before, I might add. This wasn't the first time. So she's like fuming by the time this has happened. And it's happening to authors all around the world. It was really... It was like a, a real issue. Now it's happening to Harriet Beecher Stowe as well. I think she was that, that someone else was profiting quite a bit off of the unauthorized Uncle Tom as well. Mm-hmm. Wow. This chapter spoke to me as a lawyer. <laughs> I was like, hey, intellectual property coming to light for the first time. And it's it's controversial uh, on both sides of the debate, whether the level of copywriting and trademarking in art is a good thing or a bad thing for artists. But the general consensus is that the age of copyright and the fight for intellectual property rights for authors has given authors the capacity to actually make money off their art in a way that's really difficult to do otherwise. So uh, it was interesting to read this because I never associated the writer of The Secret Garden with this very important legal battle for... A landmark battle. Yes. Francis, by the way, one of my favorite authors love 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 secret garden but her adult novels which we did a read along of the shuttle which really at the height of me too because that book has some very adult themes and themes of of men and power and abuse um which was very very powerful for us and our listeners but this woman crushed all her writing like her adult books like do not sleep on her older works they are amazing And at that point, too, she was very much writing for the stage as well. You can kind of tell like she was I mean, she was a total rock star. There's a wonderful story where it's questionable whether or not she once set her house on fire. Yeah. A public scandal. The reason people think she did it herself is that she ran out with like her hair was perfect and her nightgown was like perfectly pressed. Oh, my God. Like the ruffles were all like super crisp. The drama. Like such a. Yeah, I love it. Like. But that was her. She was a character. She was a real character. She like she loved to know people. She came from very humble beginnings, like the opposite of Beatrix Potter, really, because she came from from no money. And she loved money. She loved fashion. She she loved being out in society. She loved her success and she reveled in it. And it was really fun to kind of capture someone who was like, I am it like look at me I have made it I am the moment yeah and like just accepting that diamond bracelet she's like yes thank you for (laughs) recognizing me here's a toast to me and then trying to capture that at the same time as depicting what happened to Sebum the young man that she kind of went up against legally yeah she kind of chewed him up and spat him out a bit Mm-hmm. <laughs> have you seen the secret garden musical not yet no no I'm oh because then my second question was going to be uh if you have do you think she would have approved of that adaptation which i think she probably would have as long as they were giving her her royalty checks i'm sure she'd be fine well speaking of books with 
iconic adaptations. Our final author is Louisa May Alcott, or the writer of Greta Gerwig's Little Women. <laughs> True story. This is so funny because Little Women has made it so far back into the zeitgeist, and it was like something my sisters and I read all the time when we were young. They keep remaking they it. Do. There's a Little Women for every generation. It's true. Mm-hmm. Same with Pride and Prejudice. I gotta say, I I did like the um the most recent adaptation more than I've liked the other adaptations. I was a consistent watcher of the Elizabeth Taylor adaptation when I was younger. Oh, I love that one. It's great. It's a great Christmas movie, isn't it? Yeah. And uh, I, I think it's interesting. It it does center Amy because uh, Elizabeth Taylor plays Amy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't seen this one. My gal Amy. Oh, yeah. What? Yeah, it's it's a really good adaptation. Um, but uh, I, I, I cried the entire time. I was watching the uh, 2019 Little Women. Oh, so did I loudly. Our listeners, I think, know this already, but I went with my friend and we sat in the back of a crowded theater and sobbed. And we were the only two, like, really loudly sobbing, like, disgustingly sobbing. And at the end, the people in front of us turned around and asked us if we were okay because we were just, like, completely faces streaked with red. Um, I have never read Little Women, but I really am obsessed with Louisa May Alcott and the fact that she did not want to write it and didn't like it. And then once it was like time for it to be published, she was like, eh, it's, it's not bad. It's okay, actually. I'll get that coin. Yeah. She loved that it resonated with people. Yeah. You know, like at least it said something. But when I was writing that comic, one of the things that really kind of opened up Louisa May Alcott to me was a letter that Lauren had found about um, the the company coming to visit and how uh, no one could understand how tiring it was that all of these people would come and like their friends wouldn't call on them anymore without bringing people because she's Louisa May Alcott, the author of Little Women and Orchard House, where she lives, her home, is the March House from the book. And I think it gave us the opportunity to write about someone who was dealing with fame within their own lifetime and kind of the negative side of it. And like with success, there does come a lot a loss of privacy and she really she wanted to re she she wanted to recapture that what's interesting is that the reason she became so famous is because she wrote about something very personal and relatable and the thing that she wrote about that was so personal and private became characters in this book that people then took on as their own personal private life and like we all relate to we're all one of the sisters you know like mm-hmm. like oh like we were talking about the beginning um like I'm an Amy and Becca's a Joe and you know <laughs> I didn't even say it was a Joe but you just knew oh I just knew <laughs> imagine if someone was like guys I really think I'm a Beth you'd be like oh you think you're a Beth you you're so good you're so much better than me what's the what the last one's name Meg Meg, Meg. right right Emma Watson. I, I think Meg can be slept on her. I think her story is actually pretty interesting, but I think that the story really often does boil down to sort of the Joe versus Amy, but I think the other two sisters have perspectives to offer. I remember reading Little Women as a kid. In, in the UK, it was published as Little Women and Good Wives as two separate books. So in Good Wives, that's kind of when Meg moves beyond. The thing with Meg is that she's the only one that really remembers them having money. And so it is interesting to have her as one of the sisters who does like pretty things and defending that and defending her life choices. And then in Good Wives, what she's doing that she isn't, that uh, Alcott isn't really able to do with the other sisters because Beth died and then the other two aren't doing it, is that Meg is struggling to be a mother and to run a household and to do all of those things that she has taken for granted for so long that her mum just does. She burns the jam. 
she is tempted to buy an expensive dress, which is more than her husband's wages. And so I think Meg's story actually gives us a really vivid and realistic picture of, of being a woman and being a wife, while Joe and Amy are giving us this kind of aspirational career woman who seems very ahead of her time. And it can be hard to like give the same importance to a, what is a very domestic storyline. Yes. And I do think that there are women who still resonate with that story today. There are still mm-hmm. women who really want to be good wives and mothers. And that's totally fine. And I think the pressure of society still persists to do that perfectly. Mm-hmm. Now there's all this be a career woman on top of it as well. But I, I think that you get a lot of different perspectives. I really appreciated that the Gerwig adaptation adds the dress storyline into Meg's plot. Yeah. It shows her struggling, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it shows like she made these decisions and she thought they were right at the time, but some of them weren't consistent with her deepest desires necessarily. So anyway, that's Little Women. This is Louisa May Alcott. <laughs> My favorite part of this chapter was the and where you wrote that the editor, J.T. Fields, gave Louise May Alcott $40 and was like, you know, stop writing, open a school, you'll be good at teaching. And she sent it back to him after she made it big and was like, thank you, but I've got it. I'm repaying the debts. Moving on. What a queen. I should really send a copy of why she wrote to my media teacher who told me I'd never succeed because I'm not determined yes, enough. Yes, do I it. I should send him a copy. You should absolutely do that. Do it. Highlight that passage and, and send it to him. Put the little bookmark in on that passage and like <laughs> circle it and star it. With love. With love. I used quotation marks. <laughs> this is a podcast. Um, that brings us to the end of the book. Are there any other thoughts you want to impart on our listeners about the process of writing this book? Why you think it's important? Oh, gosh. You guys had such great, like, notes. It was amazing listening to your reactions to the book because I feel like that's, like, why we wrote it. Why she wrote. (laughs) Lawrence, stop it. Yeah, honestly. (laughs) I didn't plan that. Because when we were writing this book, I think there were a lot of times we're like, oh, God, is this is this interesting? Is this aspirational? Like we're really interested in the struggle. We're interested in like these sort of relational bits. Um, You know, there is a bit of literary analysis in the book, but I don't think of myself as some sort of literary scholar or anything like that. Um, It's really just the, the stuff that I, as a writer and an editor, like find interesting and relate to the most. Um, And some of the stories that like kept us motivated, I think, to continue not only writing, but also continue our podcast because this work is like ongoing. Like we're still doing this. We're still looking at these stories and trying to find the ways that they relate to us and relate to each other. So um, I don't know. It's so generic. It's like if you're writing, if you're struggling, that's fine. That's normal. Like if that's absolutely fine and just like keep going, it's a journey. I, I that's so it's not so cliche, but it's it's so true for me and for like Louisa May Alcott because can I just add on like I love Louisa May Alcott's juvenilia her earlier stuff her crazy like gothic short stories she's obsessed with Charlotte Bronte by the way and she just keeps writing Jane Eyre elements and all of these gothic thrillers and then none of those really do it right like none of them hit like no one cares they're just like no write more little women Mr. Niles doesn't give a shit yeah they're like just write little women and she's like ah so it's a struggle it's a journey it's it's frustrating but like that's okay just try to find joy where you can 
Yeah, what she said. That's beautiful. I love it. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on, listeners. Uh, if you want to purchase this book, we highly recommend it. I I blew through this. It is. We obviously didn't get to touch on every single element of the story that is present in this book, but it's engaging. The artwork is gorgeous. Shout out to your illustrator. And it's very insightful about a lot of very different, complex, and wonderful female writers. So do you want to tell our listeners where they can purchase this book? Sure. You can purchase it on Amazon or bookshop.org, which we highly recommend. Or you could go to your local comic book shop or independent bookstore, which, again, we also recommend. And just give them the title and they can order that for you. Where can people find you on the internet if they want to hear more about you two or hear your podcast or what have you? You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Bonnets at Dawn and you can find us on Facebook by searching for Bonnets at Dawn and you can join our really active and lively discussion group where we run all of our read-longs and we share episodes and just loads of information about all of the authors covered in the book and show at Bonnets at Dawn. Thank you both so much for coming on and being willing to talk and I guess thank you to your your agent or whoever sent us copies of the book. That was clutch. So So until next time, stay proper. And lawyer up because you never know when you might need to go after someone for taking your intellectual property. Yes. Pod and Prejudice is edited by Molly Burdick and audio produced by Graham Cook. Our show art is designed by Torrance Brown. Our show is transcribed by Speech Docs Podcast Transcription. For transcripts and to learn more about our team, check out our website at podandprejudice.com. To keep up with the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pod and Prejudice. If you love what you hear, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash podandprejudice to see how you can support us or just drop us a rating and a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.